uh, I can basically make millions of dollars in offset of depreciation and pay you know zero federal income tax legally um, just by by doing some you know, strategic planning. And it's a really really straightforward, simple thing to do. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what it do, BTM Tribe? Welcome to episode 127 of the Before the Millions podcast. I am your host, Darrell Lalia. And on today's episode, we are interviewing Mr. Michael Becker. How this man controls 8,000 units and over $650 million in assets is incredible. We're going to break down his path all on today's show. We're going to talk about how Michael made the switch from just single family homes to multifamily, to large apartments. We're going to talk about the types of deals that Michael looks for. We're going to talk about how you can create a consistent pipeline of opportunities in any market. This is going to be a dope show, guys. Michael is one of the best in the industry at what he does. And Michael's company controls 1%, an entire percent of the entire Dallas-Fort Worth apartment market. So that is some major real estate, guys. We're going to dive into Michael's story and we're going to talk about exactly how Michael was able to build up his company. What experience Michael had going into this line of work? It reminds me so much of my story, my unfolding story. Michael's story has already unfolded, but it reminds me so much of my unfolding story in that Michael used the resources that he had around him. Michael was a banker. And he understood the mortgage industry and he was dealing out loans to different investors every single day. So he took the knowledge and the industry that he was in and he learned how to capitalize on that. He learned how to become an investor. He learned how to sit on the other end of that table. And now he's sitting at a table with major players, players that he never thought he'd be able to sit at a table with. And he's taken back by their conversations. He's taken back by how normal these people are. He's taken back by his new environment and how it's not anything how he thought it would be. So stay tuned for the episode. So we missed a Before the Millions episode last week. And for those of you that don't, that for those of you that don't know, we release an episode each and every Tuesday on the money. Um, never fails. But last week we missed an episode, and I want to say that that is partly because of this. Let's just call it a trip that I've been on the past month, month and a half, and it's more of a audit of my business and where I want it to go, and my life overall and where I want it to go. Um, so 
man, I've literally taken a step back from everything, from all the books that I read. You guys know I read about a book a week. Um, the podcasts that I listen to, I haven't listened to a single podcast um, in the past month, which is crazy. Um, social media, that's one of the easier things. But And it's not like I've just kind of taken a step back from all those things to just kind of sit around and meditate and plan and be one with myself. No, it's not that type of thing. But like I took the time out from all those things to have more time for relationships, to really get close with my clients and my mastermind members and the people around me and really go deep in what they have going on and and getting people to their goals, closing on deals, um, acquiring new clients, whatever it may be. Um, and it's been really, really, really life-changing for not only myself, but every single person that I've talked to, literally every single person that I've talked to has told me how life-changing our conversations, our planning, our meetings have been. And um, it's been really, really fulfilling. So I've been been investing in those relationships for the past few weeks. And last week, I knew I wanted to release an episode. And it's not like we don't have a ton of episodes to release to you guys. Like I at least have eight guests that have already um, interviewed and been on the podcast. Those episodes just have to be released to you guys. Another probably around eight that are scheduled to be interviewed. And, um, you know, through this, through this, again, this trip or whatever you want to call it, I've considered, and right now it's just a consideration, but it may, it may change very quickly. But for now I've, I've considered the possibility of no longer having guests on my show. I know, right? <laughs> Crazy. Um, but I've considered it and the more I contemplate it, the more I think about it, the more I like the idea, but for the rest of the year, at least my commitment is that that's not going to happen for now. But, um, for 2020, who knows? It's still, it's still something that that's a floating idea or maybe it won't be that extreme, but guess will be very few and far between. How about that? I don't know. We'll see. But anyways, um, if you're new to this show, please go ahead and subscribe. We drop an episode each and every Tuesday. I will not miss another Tuesday for the rest of the year. Hopefully. Definitely. Quite assuredly. But we'll see. Um, Maybe. Apart from that, guys, I'm super excited to introduce to you uh, Michael Becker and his strategy and his Before the Million story. Let's get into it. But first, let's get into the tip of the week. DeRay's Tip of the Week. So I just realized that that might have been a cliffhanger. Like, DeRay, what do you mean no more guests? Like, how are you going to have a show? So if you want to get a taste of what a show, a Before the Million show would be like without any guests. And again, this is this is just a theory for now. I'm not saying this is what I'm going to do. But if you want to get a taste of that, I want to take you back in the time machine, especially for those of you who haven't yet listen to some of the prior episodes. What you should actually do is go ahead and subscribe. Once you get done listening to this episode, just let the episodes keep playing and work your way backwards and you'll start getting to some of these gems that I'm talking about. But to give you guys an example of some of my solo episodes that you can really take a lot away from and the type of content that I want to continue producing alongside talking about my journey as much as I want on a consistent basis, here are some of this year's episodes that I think you can really take a lot away from. First up, Before the Man's episode number 91, Why You Hate Get Rich Quick Schemes. Again, this is a solo episode where I challenge our belief system about what it means to be wealthy, about what it means to become wealthy, and what you've already 
embedded in your psyche that's preventing you from getting rich quick. Again, episode 91, why you hate get rich quick schemes. Episode 100, more money, less time, better results. This is an episode, a productivity episode that helps you efficiently use all 168 hours of your week. I have a ton of tips that are going to get you to be a lot more efficient and a lot more productive with the time that you do have. You do not not want to listen to this episode. This is episode 100. Another solo episode I did was episode 116, The Real Secret to Manifesting. Now, in this episode, I challenged one of my coaching clients. I challenged her to take efforts to build a six-figure business. Guys, it's a whole lot simpler than you think it is, but at the same time, it's probably a whole lot harder than you think it is. So I show her the real secret to manifesting and making her dreams a reality. Guys, this is episode 116. Episode 117, The Lifestyle Business Blueprint for Real Estate Entrepreneurs. Guys, in this episode, I take you guys behind the scenes and I let you guys experience what it's like to have a mastermind session with me. So this is actually a real life mastermind session with myself in the Before the Millions Mastermind. And we're talking about building a business from scratch and the steps that you need to build that business. Regardless of whether you're a realtor, a property manager, a real estate investor, an app developer, a loan signing agent, I do not care. There are very fundamental steps that you need in order to build a successful business. And in episode 117, I walk you through those steps. Episode 118, guys, your real estate strategy sucks. And here's why. When I got started in real estate, I just believed that the best way to get started was buying a single family home, putting down a large down payment on that property and making sure I made anywhere from $300 to $500 a month and rinse and repeat that process. But that was a losing strategy and I quickly discovered that and I found a better solution. In episode 118, I detailed that solution and why I think it's better than putting down a large down payment on your first property and then trying to figure out how you are actually going to escape the rat race. Again, guys, episode 118. Episode 120, another solo episode, guys. There's been a ton of solo episodes this year and I still have them coming. Episode 120 is called Heat Seekers and High Value Targets. So if you want to know, the best way to get in front of potential clients. If you want to learn how to leverage your current resources where you currently are and still grow exponentially, if you want to know who who should be helping you build your business, who should be helping you have a bigger impact, if you want to know all these things, listen to episode 120 of the Before the Man's podcast. I'm going to show you exactly how to figure out your most important business task, when and why to delegate, automate, and delete, and how to incorporate more than $10,000 per hour tasks in your business. Now, today, pronto, ASAP. Guys, episode 120, Heat Seekers and High Values Targets. And last but not least, guys, episode 125. If you want to know why it's not working, why you've been trying these YouTube videos, these Udemy videos, these articles, these podcast episodes, you've been formulating this real estate plan and you've been going out to look for motivated sellers or you've been on Zillow and you've been cold calling, you've been doing all these things from these videos and these articles and these blogs, and these forums, and it's just not working. If you want to know why it's not working, if you want to know why you're struggling on your journey to full-time employment, if you want to know why you've learned so much, but you've taken so little action, episode 125, I break down exactly what's keeping most of us from actually building a transformational business.
a real estate machine. I'm going to show you exactly what's holding you back and why it's not working and why you've been so focused on information and the transformation is on the other side of a key ingredient. That is in episode 125, guys. So if you want a little bit of a taste of what I have in mind and and how and kind of how I have this idea to go solo and maybe even unscripted, um, this archive that I've presented to you guys today will kind of give you a little bit of insight as to how it may just look in a few months, guys. So there's your tip of the week. Let's go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, our conversation with Mr. Michael Becker. And now your feature presentation. First part of my career, everything was just going up. You couldn't make a bad loan. And then all of a sudden it worked until it didn't. And then it didn't work at all. And then it was uh, the exact opposite. So, you know, I was probably a banker, like, uh, you know, making loans for about three or four years um, before everything kind of hit the fan. And then for about a two, two and a half year period, pretty much all I did was problem loan workouts. So I was working for a regional bank. My bank got bought by Wells Fargo in 2008. And, uh, you know, pretty much overnight, everything switched. And uh, and then we just kind of did problem loan workouts. So all these people that I was making loans to, uh, and I inherited a big book of business, we had to then go and try to figure out how to get all our money back, uh, or as most most of the money back as we possibly could. So I was kind of the grim reaper there for a little while, um, you know, foreclosing and, you know, kind of working these, working these loans out. And, uh, you know, I think the last thing from my mind really during that time was, you know, hey, I want to go invest and get into real estate. Um, you know, really kind of two things that kind of kind of flipped my switch was, um, you know, 2010, my mom, my mom actually passed away. And so she was in her late fifties and, uh, and kind of, you know, watching her and my dad kind of sacrifice their entire life and save money and live below their means for the hopes that once they hit retirement, they go kind of enjoy it and travel and do all this stuff. And then my mom died before she got back to go do that. And, uh, so that was, that was one thing that kind of really impact, uh, was impactful on me that, um, kind of need to, you know, why it's important to do that kind of stuff. It's also important to have some balance to be able to kind of live your life while you're young and healthy because you never know what tomorrow has. And that was kind of something that hit me when I was in my early 30s. Um, and then and then one of the other things really happened, I think it was in 2000 and, uh, 2010 or 2000, it was a 2010 tax return, early 2011. Um, I went to go file my tax returns and I, you know, I was a pretty well-paid employee. I did pretty good for myself, but uh uh, I went to go file my returns and I couldn't even itemize on my tax returns. I had zero deductions. I was just a W-2 employee putting money in a 401k and just kind of, you know, that just kind of pissed me off to be honest with you. I just got upset about that. I kind of reflected back and started looking at a lot of our clients that I was loaning money to and they made all this money. Um, you know, if done right, they make millions of dollars. And I looked at their tax returns, and they all show like paper losses on the tax returns. So paying little to no tax. And I was kind of just kind of upset me and talking to my accountant. He's like, well, there's nothing I can do for you because all you have is a W-2 and a 401k. So you got to either own a business or own real estate. And that's kind of what really, um, you know, real estate seemed a little bit more attainable to me. And I just started reflecting, kind of paying attention to what's going on in the world, just looking at how much real estate's on sale. You know, in 2011, everything started kind of, uh, unfreezing and coming back. And that's when I uh, went out and started. I bought a, a three bed, two bath house in Mesquite, Texas for like 75, 80 grand. I uh, spent 15 grand renovating it and then uh, turning it into a rental for 1100 bucks a month or something like that. That's kind of how I got started, which is a one bed, uh, well, or three bed, two bath, single family house in 2011. And then, uh, you know, kind of ended up ultimately doing 16 rent houses. Uh, you know, one by one by one between 2011 through 2013, early 2013. And kind of through that process, realized that it wasn't very scalable. You know, if I wanted to really do, um, you know, bigger and better things, it, it, you know, you need to kind of get larger properties. 
And uh, all the time I was doing that, I was a uh, successful. The, the, the lending market started coming back on late 2010, started loaning on uh, multifamily projects. A lot of the stuff that was kind of bridge product to fix all the uh, broken properties from the recession and kind of build a program out for Wells Fargo and ended up doing a ton of loans and just kind of realized that, uh, you know, I, I knew a whole lot and I was only taking advantage of, of a little bit of it at that time. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about when you say that what you're being taxed as opposed to a real estate investor or a business owner would be would be taxed um, on that on that gross amount? What what would that look like? Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I live in Texas like you do, so we're fortunate to only have uh, the federal income tax to worry about. So if you live in someplace like you know Connecticut, New York, or California, you got a state income tax on top of it. But I believe I was uh, I was you know somewhere in the, the twenty eight to thirty five percent tax bracket. I don't remember exactly where I was, so. You know, of every dollar I was uh, I was grossing um, after you know you deduct your four hundred one k and standard deduction, I was paying you know twenty eight percent, so I was paying you know thirty forty thousand bucks, whatever it was on on a hundred thousand um, dollars, an income that I, that I would I would make, and you kind of contrast that to now, you know, we can literally make millions of dollars a year through uh, through the benefit of depreciation and uh, some of these recent tax law changes that you can even accelerate a lot of depreciation. Uh, I can basically make millions of dollars in offset of depreciation and pay you know zero federal income tax legally um, just by by doing some you know, strategic planning and it's a really really straightforward simple thing to do and it's all just due to kind of the, the benefit that you get by being a real estate professional and having uh, the benefit of uh, depreciation offsetting so earned earn income that you might get. When you when you first started having some of these realizations, I, b- I believe it was because you were in the lending industry and you started to see that there were investors that you were lending money to and they were doing some of these. Again, these are not secrets. These are things that any any CPA would tell you. It sounds like things started to click for you. Seeing all the benefits that you saw, why do you think that for you it was more tangible or something that, and again, it can, it can relate back to what was going on with mom, your personal life, but why do you think for you at that time, that was something that you really needed to, to, to start looking into? You know, what's uh, the saying? The enemy of uh, enemy of great is good. You know, something like that. So you have a good life, everything's going well, and you make you know six figures and have a four hundred one k, and you get your four or five weeks of vacation. You can take a year and company call or company uh, expense account, things like that. So that's what a lot of the uh, what I had a lot of my contemporaries had in the bank, and and uh, so you see, and then you, it, being a banker, you get kind of breeded in this uh, certain level of conservatism. That is kind of sometimes is hard because when you go out and make a, make an investment, whether it's a single family flip house or or whatever it is, or a multi million dollar multi family property, um, you know you're never going to know everything you need to know, right? You know you're always going to have some level of uncertainty when you go out there doing um, doing a transaction, and that's what kind of separates the, the better investors from from those that can take action from those that can't is your ability to be able to um, you know understand do enough diligence. Look at the deal, understand the risk, and and do the deal anyways, right? So you've got to take enough steps and structure your deal in a way that you mitigate as much risk as possible, but you're never going to eliminate all the risk in any one of these deals. And a lot of people just simply can't get over that and take on that kind of that kind of uh, risk. Um, and then, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people are lazy too. So do you think they're taking on that type of risk anyways? Well, they're taking on different risks. They're just not really aware of what they're doing. So they're, they've got the risk of the stock market and all the stuff that's outside of their control. They know far much, far less about than what I do about a three-bed, two-bath house in Mesquite, Texas. Because, you know, I grow up in the area. I drive the neighborhood. I know where the employment is. I know where the rent comps are. I mean, I can 
do basic math and understand what, you know, when income's going to come in, what my expenses are going to be on a monthly basis and have enough reserves to kind of offset anything unexpected. And that to me, that's far less risky than, than just sticking money in a 401k and going into the future with some indeterminate, you know, outcome of the stock market and indeterminate changes to the tax law in the future. You know, that's, that's to me, that's crazy. That's risky. You're having all your income being from a single source, being your employer that can simply lay you off in a bad economy, which I've, was fortunate enough to survive two round, two major recessions and a bunch of layoffs of both my employers, both the last one and the tech crunch. I was uh, working at IBM back when that happened and, you know, made through four or five rounds of layoffs um, back when I was in my twenties. And so just to me, it seemed crazy to put all your eggs in one basket, your single source income that your employer can, you know, fire you at will basically, and you have no control of your destiny. But I don't think people perceive it that way. They perceive what I do or what you do as risky because you have to borrow money and, and, you know, be entrepreneurial. And, uh, you know, you don't have to have, you know, you're not going to need your company uh, health insurance anymore, you know, stuff like that. Like, how do you, how do you health insurance? You simply go out and buy it, you know, that's what you do. Um, and a lot of people just can't get over those little simple things and they perceive risk in, in the wrong fashion. Um, you know, and then the other people, I think a lot of people are just kind of lazy. You know, a lot of people, um, you don't want to sit home and play, uh, play video games and, uh, you know, screw around at the house and, and, you know, I'm, I took the time to go out and get networked to get educated and go to all these local real estate investor clubs and how many Saturdays I gave up, how many evenings I gave up away from my family or just screwing around doing whatever I wanted to do to go out and, uh, you know, and, and get networked. And now we are raised capital. So I'm getting on an airplane on Thursday and going to uh, Orlando for two days to, t- to teach a class in front of a bunch of people. And, you know, trust me, I don't want to be sitting in some conference room in Orlando. You know, I'd rather be doing almost anything else than, than doing that. But that's kind of what I need to do to become a successful um, investor and, and you know, raise capital. And you've got to do what you got to do sometimes, especially when you have a family and a full-time job. You just got to do it all if uh, you want to achieve things that, uh, that that you aren't currently on the, on track to do. I love it. I love it. Now, when, when people... You know, when people enter the real estate world, whether it's through Bigger Pockets or you guys' podcast, which you guys have a phenomenal podcast, by the way, uh, the Old Capital Podcast. Um, when people enter the real estate world, like they they get they get you know bombarded with a ton of different things. Um, at the top of that list, for a lot of newcomers, are you know, well, maybe I should house hack or you know get an FHA loan and find a way to you know start investing that way, or maybe I should start wholesaling, or maybe I should jump into apartments. Like so many people talk about apartments and the benefits of it. I mean, self-storage, you know, there's so many things and people get bombarded with all these things. So instead of me asking this, well, how do I get started in apartment investing? Or how, how do we how do we help people get started in apartment investing? Now, I want to take a step back and ask the question before that. How do you know if apartment investing is even the right choice for a particular individual? How does that individual know? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what what you need to do when you're starting out, whether you uh, you know want to do whatever asset class it is, or, or even a, a business, not even real estate, I think you just need to be kind of um, self aware of where you're at. So everyone starts what they have. Everyone starts uh, different places with different financial resources, with different educational and professional experience backgrounds. So you just need to be very self aware. You know, so me being 40 years old with a professional background. I have and some money in the bank. You have an advantage over someone that is 19 years old, right out of right out of high school, that doesn't have any, you know, two nickels to rub together. So, you just need to be kind of aware of where you start, and then and then from there, um, you know, you're right. You get kind of the shiny the shiny penny syndrome, where like this, oh, I like self storage, I like multifamily, I like to you know fix and flip or wholesale or whatever. You have too many options, and sometimes people get. Pro- um, paralysis uh, by by looking at too many different things. So, kind of you know, if, if you have a bunch of money in the bank, you have some credit, you have a sophisticated 
a professional background, you know, maybe you don't need to go through and wholesale houses and flip houses. Maybe you can go into sell storage or multifamily out of the gate. But if you don't have those resources, you know, a lot of this is about, you know, accumulating some capital because do, doing multifamily is not a no money, no job, no credit type of business. You got to have some capital for them. You got to have, you know, professional background. You got to understand the, the business. This is, you know, a business, the inventory is largely controlled by the brokerage community and the brokerage communities cares what your background is. It's not like a house, like the seller of a house doesn't care if you own you know, 200 houses or never owned a house. As long as you have a prequel letter and can close, they don't really care. Or if you're trying to buy, you know, a multi-million dollar apartment complex, the broker's, um, you know, job one is to, you know, go market the deal, get the best price. But 1A is also qualify the buyer pool because the last thing they want to do is offer um, this property to the marketplace and then pick the wrong buyer that can't actually come through and perform on this deal. And they kind of screw themselves up. They have to go try to re-rack the deal and that kind of screws them up. So if you don't have um, a base level education, you don't know how you're going to manage it. You don't know where your equity is coming from. You don't know where your debt's coming from. Then you know the likelihood of you be even being awarded a deal of some sort of scale or size is pretty slim to none. So if you don't have those things, you got to then start finding um, you know ways to solve for those deficiencies. So you know you don't have to have everything, right? So you know we have source management. You know when we started out, we had a uh, someone with experience to come in and kind of join our team. We had you know people with some capital. Uh, you know we don't have you know we just raised twenty seven million bucks to do a deal. That was our equity check. Um, and I, you know, we, we don't have that kind of capital, but then I have, you know, an investor database that we're going to go to and get hundred thousand at a time, you know, go going to cobble that together, get the lender to give us 65 to 75% of the, uh, the money and then a loan, get, you know, 25, 30% in equity, and then kind of put the deal together, hire a management company to run it for you, hire people to inspect it for you. Um, you know, have all these things hired, lawyered for both the real estate work and the securities work. And so it's just like a puzzle, you know, you got to get all the pieces, put them together and your picture becomes clear. So I think where you start is just like, well, what do I have? What are my resources financially and professionally? And this is kind of where I need to be. And what am I lacking to get from, you know, the, the start to the finish? And let me go start solve piece by piece until I kind of get everything I need to do a deal. Yeah, and you're, you're, it sounds like you're a strong proponent of, uh, of working with what you have and where you are and then eventually getting to where you want to go by maybe doing some things that you may not want to do. Um, going back to the fact that, you you know, you have certain things on your, on your agenda, on your schedule that, that may not be the things that are top priority for you as far as what you need to do and what you want to do, but you know that it's something that, that needs to happen for business to move forward. That's right, um, yes. If you don't have any money, you need to probably wholesale houses, then maybe you take that, that capital, maybe you flip a house, and then you can accumulate – 50 grand or 100 grand and you then start buying some smaller multifamily with that capital and then it's kind of parlay it up. That'd be a reasonable path forward, but it's hard to go from like no money to buy a million dollar deal. It's just like, it's unrealistic to expect that you can, you can do that. Maybe it's possible, but it's not probable that you can do it. So focus on the probable and then just kind of work yourself forward. And, and what I, what I found about this business is not a linear business, it's an exponential business. So you don't, um, Going from zero to one is, is really, really hard, but going from one, you know, your first deal to your second deal is uh, not a little bit easier, it's exponentially easier. It's 10 times easier to do your second deal than it is your first deal. So, um, you know, that that's kind of what I've, what I've learned about this business. You can grow pretty fast. We've done 8,000 8, units in less than six years. And, you know, that's, that's a lot in a short time period in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, I had a professional background. I had a lot of connections. I have, you know, um, uh, a job that paid me to underwrite deal after deal after deal for a living. And then, um, you know, I had all that, that other people don't have, but it's possible to go that fast. And people have gone faster than me even out there. 
Um, so, you know, but, uh, but just being self-critical, self-aware of what you have and then working towards your, your end goal and, and, you know, just being humble about it. I think that's, that's a good base of being successful. When you make the move from single family to multifamily, there was a, there was a business strategy in place. There was a business, there were many business reasons why you did that. But I also want to talk about the personal reasons and the lifestyle reasons as to why you did that as well. So let's first talk about the business reasons. You went from single family to multifamily and um, maybe you started out in a small multifamily space, but obviously now you're in the apartment space. What, what were some of the, what, what was, what was going on in your head and what are some of the strategies behind why it's beneficial for you to be in that space? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, you know, my initial goal when I started buying houses would do 20 rent houses. I would make about 500 bucks a month. That'd be, uh, you know, 10,000 a month and uh, 500 a house and I make about 10,000 a month. And that was kind of my initial goal. I ended up getting to 16 before I realized that was a, that was a dumb goal to have. For me, I was, uh, you know, I need to kind of shift my goals, but that was kind of what I felt like I needed to buy back most of my life from my employer was about 10,000 a month. At, at six, at 16, Michael, what, what, I mean, tell me about that realization. What, what sparked that realization? So what happened was, you know, we're in Texas. Uh, I was self, so I had a full-time job, wife, two kids, you know, all that sort of very, uh, you know, uh, busy jobs. I was originating a lot of apartment loans and, and then uh, you throw all this stuff on top of it. I was uh, buying, renovating, leasing, and then kind of self-managing these things. So it was, uh, you know, whatever, July or August, whatever. And it was my second or third HVAC call that summer that it was going out and it was just very distracting. And then I kind of just reflect back to all the things I had at my disposal, all the, all the education, all the knowledge I had from my professional job. And I was only scratching the surface of it. And I'm looking at my clients and, you know, I'm doing well, right? You know, I'm making a bunch of money on this and increasing my net worth and having, you know, residual income off these houses. But, you know, these other people are just getting wealthy. And it just seemed like that moment in time was the perfect uh, perfect opportunity. The capital markets were opened back up. And I met my now business partner because I made a loan to this guy from uh, L.A. who bought a property in Dallas. I fly out to meet him and I met my now business partner that way who was working for a broker out of Beverly Hills that helped tie net with people out in California buy property in Texas. And, and uh, they needed someone to help put some money in these deals, be kind of local boots on the ground. And I was right there to be able to do that. So we had, uh, you know, the equity needed to do it. We had the balance sheet able to qualify for the loan. And they just really needed someone to be uh, boots on the ground to kind of help navigate it and oversee the management company. And it was a perfect opportunity to take that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that, um, that opportunity and go out and start buying these, these larger scale deals. And so I kind of seized my moment, but I was, I was ready for it. And you know what, really what it felt like I was 34, 35 when I bought our first deal, kind of, and I, I bought six deals, I bought uh, four deals, about 800 units before I actually left my job at the bank. I was about 35. And, and you know, when I left the bank and it just kind of felt like this fork in the road, you know, it was kind of, it was metaphorical, but it felt like real to me that, you know, I'm like, at my job every day and I look at my boss and my boss's boss and his boss and what they had to do all day. And I kind of got like depressed. Like I didn't want to do that, you know, and I kind of felt like, you know, I need to take my shot right now. I'm 35. It's time to go. And if I fail, I can always go back and be a banker because I was a good banker. But if I, if I didn't take that shot, you know, I'd be one year older. My kids would be one year older. It just gets harder and harder. Uh, they give you stock options. They tie you in more and more every single year. So it just be harder to actually make the move at some point. So that was kind of what it was. 
I was like, I'm going to take my shot right now. The economy is perfect for it. The market is perfect for it. I have capital. I have the experience. It's time to go. And it really was this like burning desire. And that's really what, what kind of drove me at that moment in time. That, that, that's crazy, Michael. And I, I just think about like, that's like, like divine, I don't know, divine intervention, but it's just like all the right pieces of line for you. And that's simply amazing. Now we know that everything in our business and then life itself has roller coasters, has ups and downs, has everything sure. So things have not always been peaking, Michael. So let's maybe talk about maybe the first major hiccup, right? In the in the in this in this natural star aligning moment, or maybe maybe over the next few years, what was the first major hiccup or the first major mistake? And you were just like, wait. I need to I need to reevaluate some things. Yeah, so we've been we've been fortunate just because simply uh, the the winds have been in our sails the entire time we've done it. We never made any major critical uh, mistakes along the way. So they made plenty of mistakes. There's nothing the, the market couldn't cover up with a, a good economy, right? Um, but you know, one of the ones that kind of jumps out to mind was the third property we purchased. Uh, when I started this out, I had a buddy of mine um, who had a small management company. And he actually ended up partnering with me and kind of signing on the mortgage so I'd qualify from an experience standpoint. And, uh, and then his management company managed our deals, but they weren't, uh, you know, they're probably the right management company at the end of the day. Um, and so the third deal we had, we, we, we bought a bit off a big project where we had, it was like 20 buildings, there's 255 units. And I think 20 buildings on the property, something like that. And 16 of the 20 needed um, piers for foundation work. So we had to do 880 piers of foundation works across like 16 buildings or something like that. And it was just like a major you know, dumpster fire out there, basically. And then we had all sorts of sewer issues that were currently on the property. And then we exacerbated by lifting it. So we go through and buy this property and we end up putting, you know, a couple million bucks in, in capital into it between that and fixing up the units and bunch of other stuff out there and um towards the end the city uh was in Torsi, one of the more tough cities from a code enforcement standpoint and uh, the management company wasn't doing a good job kind of communicating with the code enforcement people and uh and i was kind of relying on them probably a little too much um when i when i realized they're deficient so the city started like putting us on their target list basically and then uh they would they'd be code enforcement would be out there all the time and and uh, about the time we decided to sell it we were a little over two years in the project and we decided to sell it because we had made a bunch of money they started just coming out and drilling us and writing us a bunch of correction notices and citations and soliciting our tenants for for them to uh, rat on us for whatever nitpicky thing on the property so i found myself for about a two or three month period every other tuesday having to go to uh court to uh, defend these citations the cities are writing to us with my lawyer and it was this whole thing um that that i think if uh you know we didn't um collectively communicate as well with the city as we should have and been as proactive with the cities we should have and i had a management company that clearly was a little bit over their head and we have subsequently fired them basically and hired another management company to run all of our stuff um so that was a pretty challenging uh couple month period as we're working to sell the deal and every time you turn around another city department's coming out and messing with us uh you know threatening to condemn this building or whatever um after i spent two million dollars renovating it that the previous owner didn't spend you know a dollar on for the last decade so it felt a little bit un unfair um but it kind of was you, what it was do you remember do you remember a particular moment in this instance where you where you were just shook you were shaken up or where you just felt rattled or you felt like there was yeah actually i do um so we were we were you know we had the fire department come after us we had um uh, you know, the, they, they said uh, one of, a couple of our units at bed bugs, so these older properties tend to have that from time to time. And so they made uh, the health department made us walk every single unit 
with a pest control company and identify them. And they're, anyways, they were like threatening to, to condemn us basically. And then one day, uh, you know, as part of our renovations, we did a bunch of, um, a bunch of, uh, you know, upgrades to the units and, you know, swap out the flooring, light fixtures, plumbing fixtures, appliances, et cetera. And one day uh, the, the onsite manager got a car because someone from the TECQ, the Texas Environmental uh, agency came by and said, Hey, I heard you guys are changing a bunch of flooring. I want to know about your best abatement program. That, so what happened was a city code enforcement lady called the state environmental department on us because they were trying to get us. And uh, ultimately uh, we ended up selling the deal. We, you know, we weren't doing anything wrong, but it was like, shit, they're going to go behind our backs, go to the state to try to come get at us. That's how, like how predatory it felt at the time. And it was just like, Oh my God, and we were in escrow to sell the property and we were going to basically triple up our equity. So I was like, at this moment in time was unsure. Are we going to lose it all or triple our money? And I didn't know which one was going to happen <laughs> first. And it was just like right on the, right on the cusp of that. And it just felt, uh, felt tough. So, you know, that's one of the things that there's one of the downsides about these larger scale deals is a city, especially in Texas, pretty much leaves you alone. If you have these little small, uh, houses or whatever, but as you have a large-scale multifamily deal, to do annual inspections, and the older properties tend to get more on the radar screen of code enforcement. So now we've kind of sold a bunch of stuff and traded up in quality and learned a bunch of lessons along the way. But that was a pretty uh, rough couple months, as I was wondering if we make a bunch of money or lose it all. When 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 you feel, and I know you've had many other instances similar to this, so I thank you for sharing that. But when you generally, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel unfocused or you've lost focus temporarily, or you're rattled in one of those situations, what do you do to get yourself back in alignment? And if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? Yeah, you know, the, the other one that comes to mind that was real tough was right after the last election, we had a couple of deals in escrow, um, but we hadn't rate locked. And if you remember, the 10-year treasury started skyrocketing right after November 2016 after the election, and we got you know, millions of dollars loan proceeds cut. That was probably the second most stressful thing that, that has happened to us. And so when I'm kind of in those situations, I think it's really just about like, you know, okay, where, where's my goal? What's my objective? So it's either the first first scenario was to sell the property. You know, we had it marketed, we had a group, you know, so we have to do all these things to get this buyer to actually fund and close on the deal. Or the other one was to buy it. So we just kind of just try to block out all the noise, get the main goal and then kind of just work backwards and you can't, you know, eat elephant all at once, get it one bite at a time. So just like focus on what's in front of you, focus on the problem for the day, make it to tomorrow, you know, don't quit. Right. So just, you know, you can always quit tomorrow. Don't quit today. Right. So just keep telling yourself that and just focus on all the challenges in front of you and just kind of be very methodical about working towards the goal and anything that comes out, you know, work for that solution to solve that problem right there that takes you to the next one. So you're one step closer to achieving your goal. And that's kind of really what I do. Just block out the nose noise and focus on like the critical action items that, that gets you closer to your objective. Do you have any 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 setbacks or issues with relinquishing control to people that you work with or on the opposite end of that? Do you um, instead of relinquishing control, do you have any problems or issues as far as um, not taking charge when you should? No, I think I'm uh, the uh, hopefully I'm not delusional about that, but I don't don't think that's really my problem. Um, You know, I used to be a little bit. And then once you get so busy, you just have to right? you just have to delegate. You have to get rid of stuff. And, uh, and I think I do a pretty good job of like, you know, if, if someone has a, my, my team's uh, fortunate that we have a really good team and if there's something that they need me to know, they'll come tell me. And then if it's like too detailed, I'm saying, do you have a solution for this? I don't need to know the backstory. As long as you have it covered, let me know if you need my help, you know, come bring me, bring it to my attention. But as long as you have a solution, I'm playing, let's, let's, let's execute. Um, so I do a pretty good job. I think about delegating um, some of that stuff. So what I, what I really try to do is focus on the most critical high, high value task. 
So the stuff that's going to, you know, generally drive revenue, right? So the way you make money in this business is you got to find money and find deals, you know, so find money, find deals uh, and everything else is sort of noise. You know, it's all really important, right? Like you got to go implement your value add strategy. You got to upgrade your units. You got to, you know, improve the management. You got to execute on the sale. You got to, you know, manage, manage the, the tenant turnover and all that stuff is really critical. But, uh, but at the end of the day, the way you actually make money is find money, find deals. So at the end of the day, that's where the moment, the highest best use of my time is doing things that lead to one of those two things. So either talking to brokers or talking to investors or tracking new investors, those are where I, where I focus most of my time on uh, or try to. And, and then, you know, then everything else pops up and you got to deal with it along the way. But that's really what I try to maintain the most control over. And then you try to then outsource a lot of administrative stuff or the management can be outsourced to a management company or we have an asset manager or I have accounting help and, you know, all the other stuff that you can outsource to people, pay them a salary and they can, they can do it better than I ever could because that's what they do for a living. And I focus on the, the most high value task. In, in my opinion, Michael, unlike most strategies, the, the bottleneck of deals and the apartment space is through brokers. Yep. Um, so, so when you think about creating a consistent pipeline of opportunities, how do you do that in your business? Yeah, a couple, couple thoughts there. Um, you know, first and foremost, we're we're basically in two primary markets, right? So I'm in Dallas Fort Worth, which is where I live, and we're in Austin. Uh, we get to Austin about a year ago, and that's where my business partner lives. So he grew up and lives in Austin. So we have a physical presence in the two markets that we're in, um, and we try not to go, you know, divert. So what 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 I like about that approach um, and that works for us doesn't necessarily work for everybody. It works for us is. Dallas Fort Worth has about 800,000 market rate apartment units. Austin has about 200,000 market rate apartment units. There's more senior student and affordable on top of that. But so the market rate apartment space that I play in, about a million potential units on two markets that I'm in. So this, uh, these are markets of size and scale that I can, I can go after. So, you know, if you live in the middle of nowhere, or you live in like Houston has something like 600,000 market rate apartment units or some crazy number like that where you live. So you have a lot of opportunities. So if, if you're in an area and you're trying to focus like in Louisville, Kentucky, I don't know what the number is, but it's something materially smaller than that. You just don't have as much opportunity to go after uh, stuff. So you need to focus on areas that you have a lot of supply and uh, Dallas more so than Austin, uh, Dallas or Houston in particular, there was a lot of velocity. So he feels trade on a regular basis where Austin doesn't trade as much. So there's a lot of opportunity for these deals to be bought. So if you're not putting yourself in a position to see a lot of opportunity, you know, then you need to find another market where there is more opportunity. Uh, and in the single family space, there's obviously a lot more of that. It's a lot less sophisticated, a lot more fragmented of a marketplace on the larger scale multifamily deals. So you can apply different strategies. But to your point, the brokers control a lot of these deals. Probably um, 90% of the deals, 95% of the deals have a broker involved some form or fashion, whether it be fully marketed or whether it be the uh, quote unquote off market deal, whether it's truly off market or uh, you know, kind of the, the soft marketing kind of without a formal um, process. But usually 90, 95% of deals have the broker. So then you got to get the brokers to know, like, and trust you um, and have confidence in you that you're going to actually go out and do what you say you're going to do. Uh, and then, so you need to kind of work your way up to that. You're not born, you know, having a track record. Do you, everyone starts with their first deal. So what you, what you do, a lot of people kind of use the saying, it's a team business, right? It's a team sport. So you got to get the partners um, to then get on your team and then use their, uh, use or borrow their experience and credibility and kind of as by transfer, by proximity, you kind of benefit from that. So like what I mean, for example, is uh, if you're going to go out and buy a deal, you know, one of the largest components of it 
you know, maybe 25% of the money comes from the equity and 75% comes from the debt. So get a quality rectal mortgage broker, uh, someone that's got a, you know, what name recognition within that brokerage community and have them kind of pre-qualify you. And when you're talking to the broker, say, hey, no, I'm going to raise my equity this way. And then my debt, uh, you know, so-and-so, you know, old capital, my partner, Paul, for example. So Paul Peoples, um, you know, underwrote me and he says, I'm qualified. So the broker is going to then go behind your back, call Paul, and Paul is going to give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. And if he does it, then they go, okay, cool. So the financing is kind of covered here. Or if you're, if you're getting into it, you're buying a 50-unit apartment complex in suburban Dallas or Houston or wherever it is, Atlanta. Go find the management company that manages those types of properties, and that's the type that's the management company you probably want to hire. And then when you're talking to the broker, you say, you know, so and so multifamily management is going to manage this deal, and the broker is going to know who that is because they manage all these types of deals. And the broker's job is to buy and sell these deals, so they know all the vendors in there. So then you're going to need to transfer the credibility, like, okay, this person is going to manage it for them. So you start dropping things like that along the way, um, or even better, if you can find someone that has previous experience that's done it be able to come in and partner with you that's even better because then you know it's like hey you know why my first deal but so-and-so owns 500 units in houston texas and i'm looking to buy a deal in houston texas and then that kind of alleviates a lot of the concern of, of the broker um so those are some of the things that i do so you need to be in front of those brokers on a regular basis without being annoying which is kind of like a little um balancing act you know so you got to be persistent in front of them without being you know annoying or, or, or too pushy um, you know, you need to kind of get those guys to know, like, and trust you, you know, it's not a business you can do behind your desk or your computer. You got to get out you got to get networks, you know, got to go to where the brokers are at, got to tour deals, you know, you got to do all those types of things. Um, and those are, those are just some kind of general thoughts about how do you work with brokers and unlock some of these deals. We talked about the fact that you, you made the transition to apartments and I want to talk about the benefits of apartments as opposed to single family, just for the listeners out there who are still on the fence. There's just like Michael said that he wanted to level up in his business. And um, some people may not understand how the correlation of just switching strategies would create you leveling up, of course, more units, but what does more units actually mean? What does that mean overall? What are some of the other benefits of that? Yeah, so there's two ways, right? So I'll, I'll approach it from both like the passive standpoint or the sponsor or the active standpoint. So from a passive standpoint, if you're uh, you know a high high W2 income earner, you have a little bit of net worth, and you like your job as a doctor or an engineer or whatever you are, but you just don't want to have your money in the stock market, you could invest with someone like me, or me or someone like me, right? That that has you know done 40 transactions, 8,000 units, has you know lots of experience. And lots of relationships and network. So it's it's not an easy business to necessarily crack always. Um, so you can just leverage my relationships, my experience, my team, my capital, my ability to borrow. You put a little bit of money in and get a rate of return that that's good along with the tax proportionate tax benefits and then kind of offset, you know, that you don't get like in the stock market, for example. So that's what uh, what we kind of offer to our passive investors. But for, for me as an active investor, uh, active investor or a sponsor, what I leverage, what I like about it, it's like a perfectly leveraged business. So if you find a business that's more leveraged than this, you let me know. But basically what I can do is I can uh, leverage my relationship, leverage a broker's relationships to then bring me high quality opportunities. You know, we underwrite these deals, um, you know, then then we put a little money in, uh, leverage my database, my network, and I raise the majority of the money from other people. So I'm raising their net worth, their liquidity. Then I then go get 75% of the, the money from the bank. So I'm leveraging the bank's balance sheet. So 25% mainly from my past investor, 75% from the bank. We put the deal together and then I hire a third-party management company that does you know, the vast majority of the data at work to then operate the deal. Um, and then internally, we have layers of asset management. So I have a professional 
asset manager that then oversees them before it actually gets to me, right? And then um, and all at the same time that you know our tenants are paying paying rent in excess of what our operating expenses and mortgage are. So then we're getting positive cash flow. So I'm not even paying my mortgage back. All the while I could take advantage of the tax code, accelerate depreciation, pay no income tax. So that's basically what I do for a living. And my job is a sponsor to put all these pieces of the puzzle together and clearly communicate to all the stakeholders along the way and add value to all the stakeholders, whether that be my tenant, my management company, the brokers, the sellers, the bank, or my investors, um, you know, that, that these are the things I can put together as a, as assemble this package and this team. And uh, if you do it, it's extremely financially rewarding as well as like a feel good business from the standpoint that we can take uh, underperforming or broken properties, improve the quality of life for the residents, make it safer, make it a better place to live and uh, improve the overall community at the same time while you make, while you make money. So it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool business at the end of the day. I love it. How many total units did you say were, were, um, were in Dallas Fort Worth? Uh, there's about 800,000 market rate apartment units. And then you put those seniors, affordable student housing is in excess of that. So that's a, it's a pretty big market. So if you were just, just to guesstimate, how many, how many owners of those units would you say there were? Uh, if I were to guesstimate, um, as far as, uh, you know, so of the deals that are, that are probably, you know, hundred unit plus, I mean, there's probably, you know, I don't know, three, 4,000, um, owners in, in the metropolitan area. If I had a guess, some with more, some with less. So what, you know, if you think about it, we've done a, you know, we've basically purchased 1% of all the multifamily, uh, market rate apartment stock in Dallas, Fort Worth. And we're a pretty large owner, but grand scheme of things is still, is still relatively small. How do you, what is your relationship like with some of the other big players in, in, in the, in the local market? How, yeah. I think everyone's pretty friendly for the most part. I mean, I have a lot of a lot of my buddies own own a lot of stuff, so you know it's a competitive competitive business. You know, some guys will get along with better than the others, but all in all, I think everyone generally is pretty collegial uh, process. Unless you are in a transaction with them, they kind of screw you over on something. Then uh, you know it's uh, it's a pretty collegial uh, business. And then you know a lot of the stuff is you get the brokers to um, they'll do these like a little events, or you go like. Um, I, I like to say I like to, uh, you know, kind of like a first class rednecker, right? So I get to go shoot, shoot birds and fish and stuff like that only when it's on like a broker's trip. So they provide a bunch of the big clients with them. So then you get to go, you know, walk through a field with a shotgun and you get to talk to these two other apartment owners for three, four hours and you're in the middle of nowhere and then you have dinner with them and you just kind of bond and, and form a relationship. And then you never know when that's going to come back and help you. Cause that we did that once. And then, you know, six months later, this one guy was selling something through that same broker who put it on. He mentioned that, Hey, why don't, why don't we show this to Michael Becker he ends up showing it to me, we end up buying it from him. And then in part that helped that he had a certain comfort level with me because we spent a day together, you know, hanging out in the middle of nowhere that then, you know, that's kind of like a intangible thing that kind of came back and really kind of helped us whether he's going to pick you or me when he's selling a deal, if everything's pretty simple, that little thing kind of push it my way over, over your way, for example. Michael, is this a lifestyle that you envisioned back in 2011 when you first got started? Uh, no, no, no. To be honest with you, I wasn't quite sure uh, where it'd be. And I was kind of reflecting back to that. Uh, we were, there's a big apartment conference every January and this year, so this year was in uh, San Diego. So go to one of these dinners and there's a bunch of guys, a broker put it on a bunch of, apartment owners and you're just kind of sitting there thinking like like i mentioned my father fixed appliances we were living my mother was a secretary so we didn't have you know uh, we did okay but we didn't have a whole lot growing up and so kind of vision what a bunch of rich uh, real estate guys sitting around at dinner would be like is completely different 
in my mind when I was younger to what it is today. Most everyone's, you know, super good guys and they're just kind of joking, having a good time and, you know, um, just kind of pretty down to earth where you kind of think it's like a boardroom is stuffy and all that stuff is kind of what I always thought it would be like, but it's really just a, a bunch of guys that, you know, kind of just hang out and kind of uh, network with each other, all trying to, you know, just, just do deals and, and put capital together, improve and improve and return capital to their investors. Your children's upbringing is a little bit different from yours, um, which Very is much so. <laughs> where do you find the balance between what you're able to provide for them and to them and how you're able to be more present possibly as opposed to how you grew up, but knowing that some of the things that you grew up with, you needed to be the person you are today. How do you start? Yeah, I, I worry about that because like, um, I, I feel like maybe they lack gravity sometime, you know, like I had a lot of gravity and you had to fight through a lot of stuff and be persistent. And you're right. If I didn't have certain um, challenges, you know, growing up, um, you know, that kind of built my character into what it is and built this certain level of perseverance and follow through that you need to have to be successful at anything in life, I, I believe. So I kind of worry about that where you you want to like enjoy your life. You want to give your kids things that you didn't have, but same time you don't want to make them spoiled jerks at the, uh, you know along the way that are kind of kind of worthless to society so that's a that's just something i struggle with too just trying to figure out what's too much and you know at the same time you know you just want to make it easy on yourself because i got a lot of stuff going on um but i do feel like I've, I've done a pretty good job and the good thing about the business is i can work remotely so I, we went to hawaii for three weeks of summer and I just basically picked up and just brought my laptop and I just work from Hawaii with my family around me 24 hours a day uh, where I never could have done that if I worked at the bank. You know, I would have had to go travel to go to this place or that place and be in the office. I never would have had the same level of flexibility of time to spend with the family. Uh, but at the same time, I have certain levels of responsibility that, you know, you got to do what you got to do and you got to go do these things at certain times. And, um, you know, I'll try to make sure my, my kids kind of are aware of that, that, you know, everything we have isn't just given to you. You got to go out and earn it and work it. And you got to be respectful of everyone along that whole cycle too, that, you know, we have tenants that make, you know, $30,000 a year that are, you know, scratching by to pay $800, $900 in rent a month uh, to rent our unit. And we need to provide them a clean, safe, affordable place. And they're, you know, just as worthy as you are, even though they have less means. And, and if it wasn't for them, then they wouldn't be able to do all these things I described that then affords our lifestyle and, and returns to our investors. So just trying to make sure you do that. and. And uh, they're finally getting to the age where I'm just kind of taking them from time to time. We'll go out to a property and kind of show them around and explain just because you live in a nice house. Everyone doesn't live this way. Other people have struggles that you don't have and try to expose it to them. But they're still pretty young. So we're just trying to kind of slowly do that. Maybe when they're teenagers, we can be a little more, um, you know, organized in the way I, uh, I present it to them. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, Michael, this has been a, a fascinating episode. And to close out this round, before we get to the last and final uh, segment of our show, one last real estate question, and, and it's one that, you know, of course, many people are wondering when is the right time to jump into real estate. They've been hearing a lot of things about the market and the downturn. Um, we know markets are cyclical. even It's geographical, right? What advice do you have on the outlook of the rest of 2019 and also 2020 in the apartment space? Yeah, I mean, like like you said, everything's kind of local, real estate local. So I, I think as long as you're, you're buying in the right metro and the right submarkets, you know, so like uh, every every submarket location is certainly different. So, you know, if you're buying in places where people are moving, where there's population and job growth, friendly business climate, you know, good for uh, tenant landlord laws, kind of you're more favorable for the landlord than tenant. 
um, you know, places like Texas, places like Florida, places like Arizona. I mean, those are kind of places that all kind of generally meet that. Then within these cities, there's the better submarkets and the, the inferior submarkets. So stay away from the crime, high crime areas, saying, you know, we're more suburban people, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean urban is, is bad versus suburban. It's kind of what we do. And it's kind of get, get near employment and reasons for people to want to live where uh, at your place or, or richer office building or self-storage facility or whatever it is. It's kind of do the basics of real estate 101. So as long as you're in a good market, um, you know, the wind is kind of in your back. So like you mentioned, it's a cyclical business. There's going to be highs and lows, expansions and contractions. But, you know, housing is the universal need. If you buy in the uh, in places, you know, that people are moving to that's generally supportive of it. Um, and then and then to that point, I mean, I, I, it's really hard to time the market, right? So while, um, you know, prices are certainly up quite a bit, rents have moved materially over, over the last six, seven, eight years. Um, you know, so prices maybe have almost tripled from the bottom on some of these apartment complexes, but the rents have pretty much doubled at the same time. Um, and the projected growth is even greater than what we ever could have thought of back in 20, you know, 2008, 2009. We never thought Dallas would grow or Houston would grow at the same rate or we projected to grow even further going forward. Um, you know, so I think, I think good deals are made more than, more than uh, bought. So, you know, I think you can find an opportunity you can find something where it's not as deficient, especially on the commercial real estate side, that's deficient. Um, and the rents are low because of, you know, clear capital issues or management issues or some combination. And through your efforts, you can improve the property, increase the income, and then by extension, force the value up. And the market's going to do what the market's going to do. But as long as you're in a metropolitan area and then a sub-market that is conducive for growth and projected to have good growth going forward, you know, um, that, that's good. But if, you know, Dallas ever turned it into Detroit, and lose half the population over a 50-year period, it's going to be hard to operate. No matter if I'm even the best operator, it's going to be hard to uh, to do deals. Um, you know, and the one of the things we have today right now is interest rates are extremely low and debt's very available. So if you can come in these deals, you know, you can you can get so much better um, debt financing terms than what you could have, you know, five, six years ago when I started, that that really kind of has helped um, some of these returns along the way and also fueled some of the pricing that, that we've seen um, as well. So, you know, just buy in good areas, um, you know, do the basics of real estate, manage it well, and focus on something that you have the opportunity to create value through your your effort, through your sweat equity. And I think those would, um, you do those things. I think generally speaking, um, I don't think there is necessarily a bad time to buy if you do those things correctly. So, so, so Michael, does that mean on the record that you're saying that you're not worried about an impending downturn? Uh, I, I, uh, I'm not saying I'm not necessarily worried, but like, I don't know when that's going to happen. And, uh, and, and, and I'll put it this way. So, um, in 2010, Dallas Fort Worth had about six and a half million people. Fast forward in 20, 2018, there's seven and a half million people. So an eight year period, we had about a million people move, uh, more in the metropolitan area than, than before. And the projections are somewhere between 2030 and 2035. So you yeah, have 12, 15 years from now. Uh, there's going to be nearly 10 million people in the metropolitan area. So that's like two and a half million more people that finished 2018. So that's like the equivalent of the entire metropolitan area of either Orlando or Charlotte. You put that on top of the existing Dallas Fort Worth population. So I don't know much, but I know that rents have to be higher. Yeah, of course. Two and a half million more people right. here, which means values have to go up. So maybe we have a tough year or two. So if I structure my, my debt right, I structure my capital right, I have proper management, I'm in better located deals. And, you know, we have good product, good policy, good procedures in place. I just got to wait it out. And eventually that that the demographic wave is going to come help me out. And everything I just said, if you put in Austin, it's even faster on a percentage basis. Houston is similar. Phoenix is similar. Atlanta is similar. So there's different metropolitan areas crossing Florida, 
you know, all these things. So if you go into New York or Detroit or Los Angeles or San Francisco, maybe not. But these these types of markets that I, that we're in, I think uh, I think you'll do just fine in the long run. The most important thing here is this: you have to buy right. You know, if you buy right, you can, like you said, you can wait out the storm, especially that's what's so great about real estate, more so rental real estate in any, in any strategy that you're in, because you have the, you, you're covering your expenses with your rents. And, and it's one of those things to where, again, if you have a five-year timeline and the market's not where you want it to be in five years, you, you, you have tools, you have, you have ways to, to extend that. So that, that's beautiful. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Um, you know, really, uh, I'm not the biggest book reader, but the two that I, I, I do kind of like are the two books that Ken McElroy bought. So Ken's kind of a buddy of mine now. Uh, the ABC is a real estate investing, and I think it's Advanced Real Estate Investing Guides, both of the Rich Dad series. Uh, I think both of those are, are good. I think Ken's got a good business model, so I would encourage you if you want to get in the multifamily space to read those. I'll give you a bonus one. It's really Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright as well. Um, I think he does a very uh, good job of taking something that's extremely complex and giving you uh, simple talking points that you can work with your accountant to then be able to take some certain tax strategies and save, you know, a ton in taxes. I love it. I love it. Great recommendations. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. My favorite app that probably the most useful app that we have is Dropbox. So we have everything orderly and, and organized charts of accounts for all the different properties. And, and so everything is just easily accessible anywhere I'm at, uh, either on my phone or my desktop. I love it. I love it. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Uh, that I can pretty much work from virtually anywhere for, you know, at least an intermediate period of time. I can't go away completely, but I can go away for two to three weeks and my business will continue to run uh, without me being uh, present and, and, and in the office or out of the property. So I feel fortunate that we've been able to work ourselves and build a team out that we uh, allow me to do that. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Two things. So one was, uh, you know, when I was, uh, you know, working and, and, you know, coming, coming up, you know, I, I, I did a good job of finding a, a career that I could earn bonus and get pay raises to make some money. And then I lived well below my means. I sacrificed current lifestyle to be able to save and accumulate some capital. And then I was able to put it to risk effectively and then grow it exponentially by, by doing real estate. Um, you know, so that was one thing I knew I had to sacrifice a little bit of lifestyle along the way until I get to a point where I can afford pretty much anything I want to now. Uh, and then the other thing was I sacrificed a lot of evenings and, and weekends by going to seminars or conferences or going to property and, you know, just kind of doing the stuff uh, after hours that I didn't have time in the day to do. Um, and I was willing to sacrifice, you know, hanging out with my buddies or, you know, whatever I was, you know, other guys smoke pot and play video games. I didn't do that. I went and got focused and, and, and educated and networked. And so I had to sacrifice something to get the education and connections I needed to then go and apply and do my business. I love it. I love it. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Uh, there's many, many people that were, were essential, but, um, you know, one of the guys that, that really kind of got me uh, going and, and really networked is actually Paul Peoples, who I co-host, uh, the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. So when I worked at Wells Fargo uh, he, at Old Capital, he and I did, uh, you know, probably 120 loans in three-year period on multifamily. So he's really one of the more um, integral people that got me just, you know, doing deal after deal after deal. Without that relationship, I don't think I'd be where, where I'm at today. I love it. I love it. And um, last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? 
know, I think, I think, um, you know, one of the things I do better than most, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, you know, and I mean, I'm smart enough, but, uh, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And one of the things I don't do is I don't get my own way. So I think a lot of people have this fear and anxiety and, uh, and it's kind of getting their own way and aren't, aren't able to go out and take action, even though they know that if they, they did this, they can, they can go out. So, you know, I think what you need to do is get educated enough to know what, to, to know what you're doing, you accumulate the, the resources you need, and then just have enough sense to know that, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm um, able to take a calculator strategic risk and, I can't, I can't take every risk out of these deals. There's going to be some level of risk to it. I can structure and mitigate around most of it. And then the upside and the reward should uh, hopefully far um, outweigh any sort of potential uh, downside risk a- along the way. So just make sure you're taking appropriate uh, level of risk along the way. Don't bet at all right out of the gate. Just take strategic risk and then incrementally increase those along the way. And uh, that's kind of what I did. And I found that to be pretty impactful and successful. And then as I do one little thing, you gain a lot of confidence that you do something maybe a little bit bigger and then something a little bigger and then something a little bigger. So each success you have, uh, you not only you know get some financial reward, you also get um, confidence that you can do more and more. Well, Michael, if the listeners want to uh, learn a little bit more about you, get a hold of you, where can they find some of your information? Yeah, the two best ways, like you mentioned, we have a co-host podcast, uh, podcast of Paul People. So you get uh, the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. So you can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or probably anywhere you're hearing me and my voice right now on this podcast. You can go just type in Old Capital, find our podcast, or you go to oldcapitalpodcast.com. I love it. And the links to all of that will be in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. Again, Michael, thank you for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thank you.